0: There we go. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm 33. We've been studying through the Psalms this summer, and we are looking at Psalm 33 today. Uh, If you've been with us, you realize that's a little bit out of order, um, because we've been going in numerical order, but this is because David and I switched a while back when he did Psalm 67. Um, We switched, and I I was supposed to do 33 then. He's supposed to do 67 today. So we did the little switcheroo. So I'm doing 33 uh, as a makeup for that time, and then we'll be continuing in what would be numerical order. So uh, if you would, um, we're going to read Psalm 33 together. So uh, we stand when we read it. So if you're able, stand with me, and I'm going to read Psalm 33. After I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. Of course, you're just thanking the Lord that he'd be so kind to give us his word. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord... "...brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds... Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let me pray. Lord, be with us now as we look into your word. I pray that you fill us with the Holy Spirit um, so that we can see and understand um, all the reasons why you are worthy of praise. And Lord, I also uh, ask for myself that you would help me um, be precise and truthful in everything that I say. Um, That everything would be in accordance with your scriptures, as we seek to exegete these these verses together. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, Psalm thirty-three. The big idea of Psalm thirty-three is reasons to praise God. So, the psalm psalmist is telling us uh, multiple reasons why we can praise God. And as believers in God, we might pretty might think it's pretty obvious. Uh, that we're supposed to praise God. And we might think it's pretty obvious that there are reasons to praise God. And if someone came and asked you, hey, do you know some reasons that you should praise God? You and I would likely be able to come up with a good number of things that we can piece together for reasons worthy of praising the Lord. And that's good. Um, And Psalm 33 has done this for us. He's put together for us reasons why we should praise the Lord. Now, you might already think, I already have enough reasons. I already understand all those things. Or perhaps, you're in a season of life where I don't want to have any reasons to praise the Lord because life is just really hard right now. And thinking about having to praise the Lord is a difficult time if you're on the other end of the spectrum, if life has been tough for you. So either way in life right now, if you have many reasons to praise God because the Lord has blessed your life and you can see all the, His providential hand in your in your life, or life has been quite difficult for you lately and you aren't really interested in hearing reasons uh, to praise the Lord. Either way, I invite you to listen to the psalmist as we look at the inspired word of God that was written by the psalmist whom we don't know, although Calvin says it's David. Um, But whoever wrote it, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's telling us, God is telling us reasons that he's worthy of praise. And so I'm praying that as we hear them, we would resound as we worship in song after this and as we go and live lives of worship that we would desire to want to um, praise the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would see, even in the text, as we get towards the end, because I always ask the same question at the end, how do we see Jesus in in this particular verse? I pray that we would see Christ, um, and we would cherish Christ in this particular set of verses. Now, um, Calvin, John Calvin, he lived about 500 years ago, uh, he gives a bit of a brief kind of sketch intro on verse 33, and this is what he says, not sketch as in sketchy, as in sketch as he, like, brief, Um, and so he says, in order to excite believers to praise God, uh, hand moving and causing things to happen, that's what providence is, so on the general providence of God, by which how God sustains, uh, keeps things going, protects, you know, keeps you safe, and governs how he is over things uh, of the whole world, and afterward, after he does that towards the end of the psalm, he'll celebrate God's paternal kindness towards us as his chosen people, showing us at the same time just how necessary it is that we, his people, the godly, should uh, cherish the special care that God gives us. And so Psalm 33, reasons to praise God. Now what I want to do before we get to the actual reasons, the psalmist is going to tell us ways to praise God. So we have reasons, but he's actually going to give us there's multiple ways, uh, but he's going to give three specific ways to praise the God. And so I, I want to do, I think he does a brief introduction uh, in verses one through three on ways to praise God, and then he starts telling us reasons. So uh, I, want to, I want to make sure we rehearse together these reasons, just so we make sure we see uh, exactly the prescribed ways that God wants us to praise him. There's a lot more than these three, but I think that these three are good. So ways to praise God. Shout for joy. So, uh, number one on ways is shouting praise. And so, he, he actually means here to sing loudly. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at the end of verse three, it, the last few, three words are with loud shouts. So shout for joy with loud shouts. And so uh, some commentators say that this just means make sure that you sing the notes uh, in key. Calvin refutes that heavily and says that that is not the case because if you're like me, that's hard. And so, uh, I'm you know, 50-50 whether I'm going to be in key or not. Uh, and he he actually says that that is not the point. The should sing with fervor, and we should sing loud. Loud, jubilant singing is the mood that's being prescribed to us by the psalmist here. Um, there are a lot of moods that we can have in our repertoire of moods of worship, uh, you know, whether we're somber or whether we're uh, thinking deeply or contemplative, etc. The psalms are filled with all kinds of moods in our repertoire, but this particular one says that we should also have loud jubilant singing. We should, be, we should be happy. And so perhaps more often, we should have that part of it. So the first way that we should worship is with shouts of praise. Um, if you keep going, shout, are you righteous? Praise befits the uprights. Give thanks give thanks. This is a second way, and maybe sometimes lost, especially maybe in my heart, but maybe on you, a lost way to make sure that we are really praising the Lord is that we should give thanks. We can be neglectful, I think, maybe too often of this important way to praise God. We are, as believers, to be grateful, thankful people. We, we should be far more grateful, I think, than maybe we are, at least me. Um, we should be the kind of people that recognize continually the things that God has done for us, and want to give him thanks. We want to give him thanks. If this is something that you know that you maybe don't do so often, write that down. Write that down to, to be a grateful person. So ways to praise is shouting praise. And that, that means volume. The next one is giving thanks. And the next one I think is pretty awesome. So um, give thanks. And then it says, with the lyre uh, making melody with the harp of ten strings. That's pretty cool. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So the third way is making music. One of the ways that we can praise God is literally by making music. And then it tells us with melody and skillful playing. So with singing and with instruments. Um, And it's pretty interesting because it's saying, uh, sing to him in verse 3 a new song. Sing to him a new song. So this means that when we make music, uh, we are to, of course, sing songs that we know but you could take that and i think in the command form that we are to continually uh, seek to as the church over the last 2000 years always write new music is cl- is all, uh, also we should seek to continually be putting forward new music what's clear in all of our human experience is this i think this is common to all man is that repetition is good in music but sometimes familiarity can also breed apathy whenever we were used to songs within us, and so therefore singing new songs, of course, with gospel-centered lyrics that turn the diamond of the gospel and help us see a new avenue of the greatness of Jesus, but singing new songs cause us to now think about Jesus in a new deep way, and that will kindle our emotions, not in an unhealthy way, but in a healthy way, which is a good thing to To point us to Jesus. And so we should sing new songs. We should seek to want to sing new songs to Jesus. And while the singing of the congregation uh, here is not necessarily instructed that we sing in key, it is that we should sing loud. So we should want to sing new songs as long as they're gospel-centered, of course. Not just random songs that are just you know emotional songs that don't necessarily key in on the goodness of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. Um, I think that those... Are the ones that, you know, on the whole that are the most helpful. But also, uh, he says this, uh, that we should also have our music sung loudly by the congregation, which is important. So making melody, and we're all to sing loudly, but and that doesn't necessarily have to be done skillfully, because not every one of us can, but the music itself is to be played skillfully. If you notice, I think it's interesting, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts, And so, uh, while there's freedom with our melody to be not necessarily as uh, skillful, because not all of us can do that, the playing of the instruments should, I think, mean, you know, inductively, reduced down to those that can quite uh, play skillfully well. And so the instruction is that, for obvious reasons, those that can play skillfully should be the ones that should do it. Should do it so that it's. Uh, <laughs> it sounds good, you know. If if I don't know how to play a G on the guitar, or I just, you know, I know how to, but I slide two frets up and play, it might sound interesting to you in, a, in a, as a kind of bootleg A, but it's not going to sound good. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking, just if you don't know how to play guitar and you play it, does it sound good? No. And so, God wants us to play skillfully, wants us to sing loud. And wants those that can play to play skillfully. Um, and so those are the ways that we can we can praise. And so application means this. Um, if we're just looking at those particular things, I think, especially in regard to music, um, always, all of us, should always maintain a key eye towards the doctrine uh, of the lyrics of new songs. Um, but in general, we should not write off new songs because we're told in verse three to sing to the Lord a new song. And so we should... Should love the idea of singing new songs to Jesus. Um, as I said, I think verse 3 could be taken in the command form. And so we should embrace new songs as, as, as long as they're doctrinally written for the duration of our entire life. So those are the ways to praise God shouting with praise, giving thanks, and making music. We're going to have a, an actual quiz part on number one. Um, it's, it's, it's a vocal quiz. So we're all going to see if everybody shouts loudly at the end of the service. I'm kind of kidding. So, um, anyway, those are the ways. Now, we're going to go back to verse 1, and we're going to see the reasons. He's going to give us, I think, at least four reasons to praise God. I love the first one the most. But if you go back, shout for joy in the Lord, and then he's going to put on us some names. Calvin calls them appellations, and it just means, like, titles. So, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. So, he's calling us, the church, a couple words there. Righteous and upright. That is amazing. Because if you're like me, you know that you're a sinner. You know how wicked your sin is in your life. But because of Christ, we've been made righteous. We've We've been forgiven of our sin. And now the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, through the inspired writer, looks at us, the church, and says, righteous, upright. That is an unbelievable reason to praise the Lord. So number one, praise the Lord for making us righteous and upright. And there's no accident, uh, I can't remember which commentator pointed out. It's no accident that 33 and 32 are together. Uh, we did 32 a few weeks back. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And then in verse 1 of 33, shout for, for, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. Th- those two are telling us the same thing. So I, I included 32.11. So as I said, this is one of my favorite ones. But the, the writer's telling us, us that you and I, if we're in Christ, and only if we're in Christ, this isn't universalism, Um, But if you're in Christ, you are righteous and uprights. These designations that are given to us as God's children, as his sons and daughters, are nothing just to kind of read and keep going, instead to dwell in that truth for a little while. Calvin points out that only believers alone are capable of proclaiming the glory of God. And this is because uh, more closely, this is because the more closely and diligently that believers consider the works of God in their own life and what Christ has done, the more they will exert themselves in his praises. So if we take that as an application, it means if you, don't, uh, if you do not think that you praise God very much in your life, you should give yourself more often and more closely to the diligent considering of the works of God by Christ for you on the cross. If you find yourself unhappy, generally struggling in life, Calgen, and what he's done in Christ, and see if that causes praise to come forth in your life and in your body. That's generally if we're having trouble, it's because the focus is on us too much. And so he's calling us here as his children righteous and upright. God, in his infinite kindness and in his infinite graciousness, has adopted us into his family. And he's called us now righteous. So, I, what I've done here, I, I have one, two, three, four, five, I have six, and you could find, you know, 6,000. But I've found six verses that. Help us just remind us about Jesus Christ, our righteousness in the Bible, and just to let you hear how God speaks about us as His righteous. First Corinthians one thirty, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us a wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Second Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dare, dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Romans 4, 5. And to those who does. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans five seventeen. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. So Christ is our righteousness. And the last one, Philippians 3, 9. And be- and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law or law keeping, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And since he is our righteousness because he died for us on the cross, took the place that we, that we were supposed to have and took all the wrath of God for us. Now we are righteous and upright. And these are the designations that the inspired writer tells us. So we should praise God for making us righteous. As a matter of fact, if you look there at the verse, and you're like, "Ah, I just don't feel it. Look what he says. Shout for joy, O the Lord, are you righteous? We already know we're supposed to shout. And then he says, praise befits. Now, I don't use that word ever. (laughs) I can't remember if I've ever said the word befits in one of my conversations. Avah in the Hebrew. And it can be translated like, desire or wish. So when you say praise befits, it like, it sounds like it fits. Like it, it sounds like it's something you should do. But it's a little bit more in that. It's not just something you should do. It actually means, it can be translated in other places, desire and wish. So when praise befits the upright, it's something that we should desire and wish to do. Um, we should, based on what Christ has done, it should be our great desire, our great wish to praise the Lord continually for what he's done. So whenever we see, praise God for making it, it's because it should be within you your great desire and wish to do that because of what Christ has done. Calvin, when God allures believers so sweetly, it is proper that they employ themselves in celebrating God's praises with their whole hearts. When God has drawn us in and saved us so sweetly, It is absolutely proper that we employ ourselves in celebrating his praises with our whole hearts. Reason number one is because the Lord in Jesus Christ has declared you, if you're in him, righteous and upright. Now, he's going to broaden it out here when we get to four through nine. And he's going to talk about creation. You can see, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves the righteous righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love. And then he even gets specific. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Very Genesis 1. He gathers the waters of the deep as a heap. He puts them in the deeps of storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. All the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, very Genesis 1. And it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. So the second reason we should praise God is not just because we're upright and righteous, but number two, praise God for his wonderful word and work to bring about creation, like the Lord brought about creation, and, and doing that, um, if you have never tried, is, is very difficult, <laughs> like that's not easy, I can't do that, not even close, and the Lord did it by saying, I want an earth, let there be an earth, and some water, put all the planets everywhere, like just by speaking, he just says it, now I have children, and by speaking, and telling them to go do something, It's a low chance that it's going to get done, right? Very low chance. Go clean your room. Who knows, right? That's not what it is for him. When he speaks, because he is God, he speaks things not just to happen, but literally into being. It's pretty amazing. And he should be praised for this. And there's repetition. You can see it um, for the word, word, for the word of the Lord is upright uh, in verse six. Uh, by the word of the lord and then you can see in verse 9 for he spoke and so it's telling us that he has we should praise him for his word he's he's spoken his word is his eternal counsel and his eternal decrees done from eternity to past these are the fixed things that he wants to happen and the way that that word happens is through the work and so um these this word is totally upright it tells us. as upright as we have been declared whenever we're called upright, so are his decrees given to us. If we're called upright, then the Lord's uh, decrees are just as upright or reverse. Uh, we're just as upright as his decrees. He's good. He's, everything he does is good, which means that when we're upright, we're made to be in Christ. So we also have the work or the effect. Uh, in verse 4, praise the Lord for all the work He has done. So we're praising God for his word and his work. So the work is, if the word is the the eternal decrees, the work is bringing about those eternal decrees forever. That's the the execution or the unfurling of his counsel and his decrees. And the work is done, as it says, in faithfulness. The work is done in faithfulness. Uh, Meaning, as Calvin points out, everything that God appoints and commands to be done is always right and good. Because he's God. there isn't things that he ha- There are no things that he's done that aren't. Everything he brings to pass um, in his operation is always faithful and true. And so we can see some of the things about his work. It tells us in verse uh, 5 some, some characteristics. This won't be on the screen, but it tells us some characteristics of, about the work of God that he does in verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And so the characteristics of his work is that he loves righteousness and justice. Whenever you see these two words together, Alec and the justice or the judgment to the righteous application and practice of God's righteousness. And so uh, those things always would go together. Not only that, the characteristic of his creation and work of God is that he loves those things, but also the second half of 5B, which is amazing, is that the whole earth, as it says, is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the, the the I've said this many times, but the the steadfast love. When you see that, that's talking about the hesed love. This hesed love is is God's covenant love with His people. It says covenant love. This is um, there's a uh, I can't remember the, the book, um, I, but I just it came to my head. But they talk about uh, God's hesed love for us, and it says it's like never stopping, unending. Love that sticks in stopping. Jesus Storybook Bible. Never stopping, never ending. It came to me and I had to say it. So uh, n- never going to leave kind of love. As David says in Psalm 52, 8, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. That's the love I trust in. The one that is always coming towards me, never gonna stop coming towards me. He's pursuing me and never going to stop pursuing me. And it says in verse 5b, the earth is full of of the steadfast love of the Lord. So a characteristic of God's work in creation is, it's put on display. Not just for you and I who are believers, but even for unbelievers. The steadfast love of the Lord is put on display in all of creation. And it even tells us about how you can see his power in all creation in 6 through 9. By the word of the, heaven, by the, word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host... So in verse 6, you see the, as Calvin calls it, the upper arena. By his word, he's creating the heavens and the entire hosts of the heavens. And he's picking Genesis 1 language. He's saying his his power is so great in creation, he creates the entire upper host. But then he also talks about the upper arena, and he talks about the lower arena in verse 7. He gathers the waters of the deep. See as a heap, and puts the deep in storehouses, and so he 's creating the low, low arena, has total control over it and by doing that, he uses something very specific. He uses water why Why does he use water to show us the power of God? because water is extremely difficult to control i 'll say it this way: you go out to the beach and you get some wetter sand and you put it together into a ball if I said, make, make some uh, make some you know some snowballs, not snowballs, but sandballs, you know, whatever, like, make some. You can make some, right? Or if it snows, I say, go make some, and you, you can make them. If it's just water, I said, get some water and pack it into a, a water ball. Like, you can't. Like, as soon as you do it, boom, falls. God can do that. He, he tells it where to go, and he can stick it right where he wants it. That's what he's saying. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts them in deeps and store. He can move them, and they will stay. And they will be, if he wanted them to form an elephant in the shape of water, and it's water not frozen, he could. Like, he's got this unbelievable ability. The writer's extolling us because he's helping us see in the upper arena and the lower arena, God is putting on display his power in all of creation. Ralph Davis, the writer wants us to be staggered by his immensity, the control that God has in gathering up all the vast and unruly seas in a heap and assigning ocean depths to their respective storage facilities. He puts everything right where he wants it, and he's putting on display just how immense and how powerful he is by putting all these things. His power is on display in creation for us. So how can I praise God for his word and his work? Because the steadfast love of the steadfast love of the Lord is everywhere in creation and his power is also on display everywhere. The writer wants to understand um, that God simply spoke and all these things happen. So if I rewrote number two, it won't be on the screen. Uh, if I rewrote it, it would be something like, praise God for his wonderful work in word and word in creation because all he had to do is just speak and created everything that he wanted to just with his words. Yes, he's just that powerful. I didn't put that on the screen because it's too long. Um, But that would be like the the best way to understand how unbelievably powerful God is and why we should praise him. So what should we do? What should we do in response to that unbelievable display of power in creation? And we should praise him. Verse eight, verse eight. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world should fear the Lord. And this, don't, I don't want to soften it by just saying, and that just means, you know, be in reverence all, reverent awe of him. It does mean fear. Like, <laughs> it just got through telling us what he can do. We should fear him. That's, that's a majorly powerful God. He is, um, he is someone that should be feared. Knee-buckling, trembling fear. But he's also good. He's always good. And he's amazingly powerful, so we should fear him, which moves us to have reverence, all for him. reverence and awe for him. And we should also stand in awe, awe. as it says, the writer says that every inhabitant of the world should stand in awe of him. Every person on the planet, everyone should stop. Believer or unbeliever should stop and see just how mighty he is. Calvin says, to prove the inconceivable power of his word, he ordered that as soon as he should, as it were, pronounce the word, this thing should be done immediately. That the incomprehensible power uh, that he has Should be he should be praised for this. So, number two, praise to God for all of His work, word and work, and bringing about all of creation. Now He's going to move into another reason in ten through seventeen. He's going to, as Calvin told us in the intro, He's going to talk about His providence. So we've talked about how He created everything and set it up, but He didn't just do that. He's also continually working in it as well. So. Uh, 10 through 17, number three, praise God for his continual providential work in creation. The difference between two and three is we're praising him because he made it all, and now we're praising him because he didn't just make it, but he's continually working in it as well. This is the difference between deism and theism. Um, So uh, both of those two, deism and theism, hold that there's a a quote-unquote higher power as some philosophers will use as a term for God. If they don't believe in God, philosophers like the God of the Bible, they'll say, I believe in a higher power, and they'll either be a deist or a theist. And so the key difference between these two is that deists or deism posits that God creator made everything, and after he made everything, he's just totally hands off. Like, there it is, I put it all together, I set it up, but I'm not going to interact with creation at all. That's number two, but that's not biblical, we are not deists alone. We believe in, that there is a creator, but we are theists. Theists believe that God created everything like deism, but that he's totally and intricately involved in every single aspect of creation continually. That's what the Bible teaches us. This is what um, the Bible continually tells us about our God. Psalms 33 extols us to praise God because he is continually working in all of creation. As I said, this is called providence. His, sometimes the Bible, you hear people say the providential hand of God is doing something. That's why you hear people say that is because um, it's not just saying that he gave and he provided. It's also noting the gift, but he's continually acting and working. And he's to be praised for this. We should praise the Lord that he is continually providentially working in all of creation as a good dad, as a good father would do. And so in verses 10 through 17, um, we can, he's telling us to praise him for his providential hand. And he's actually going to show us three major types of work in his providential um, work in creation. So uh, you can go, I think the title, may, well, put, they'll put them all up. Three types of his providential work in creation. You can see them in 10 through 12, um, and then 13 through 15, and then in sixteen and seventeen. So, I know all you're going to write and not listen to the first like three minutes of everything I say. So I'm just going to wait. I'm just kidding. All right. So, uh, ten through twelve, all the type heirs got to write. Just write with. me need to write it, but don't. He frustrates the plans of the nations and elects the chosen. the God, The Lord brings counsel to the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So God's plan is always preeminent. God's plan is always first place. He stops all the plans of the nations when they aren't in line with his plans to make sure his plan is always done. The Lord brings counsel of the nations to nothing. If they don't align with his plans, they don't happen because he frustrates those plans of those people. The counsel or his plans of the Lord, they stand forever the plans of his heart to all generations. And that just means whatever he wants to happen is going to, if we want something to happen that's not in line with his will, he'll stop it. Calvin says it this way. um, As the great majority of men rush headlong in indiscriminate licentiousness, that's just another word for sin, the prophet speaks not only of individual men, but all nations, in other words. He affirms that, however, men may conspire among themselves and determine to attempt this or that with great hosts, yet shall their purposes be brought to nothing. Because it is as easy for God to scatter multitudes as just to restrain a few. So like, if my son, my five-year-old, wanted to do something, I could just stand there and I could just do this. It's pretty simple. And he's saying, as easy as it is to restrain one or two things, God can restrain everything on earth if he wants to, and it's quite easy. So he frustrates the plans. He will stop their wicked plans when they're not in line with his plans of everything. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Let that let that phrase comfort you. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The right the writer is exalting the infinite power of God in such a way that it should build your faith. The counsel, the plans of the Lord stand forever. This is a declaration that you can hang your hat on for everyday life. This sentence can Is something you can build your life around. The the counsel of the Lord stands forever. That's a word that is totally dependable, and God is someone that you can always trust. But His His counsel, His plans will always stand. And ten through eleven tells us that He stops the nation's plan, and then in verse twelve He tells us exactly what His plans are. When He says, "Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage." Now, I don't think that this is a verse claiming that America is God's chosen nation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It can definitely be a verse that reminds us that he loves the church. And in America is the church. And so he, since he loves us, he loves the church. He wants us um, to have blessing and he will govern us in a way that will do that. So blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That We're not a theocracy um, One day we will be in Zion, praise the Lord, uh, the people whom he has chosen at his heritage. So Calvin puts us into a great perspective as the church. He said, for when God consents to undertake the care of our salvation, to cherish us under his wings, to provide for our necessities, to aid us in all of our dangers, all this depends on our adoption by him. So when, when the Lord comes and sustains us and keeps us and provides for us, it is because he's adopted us as his children. But lest it should be thought that men obtain so great a good by their own efforts, the writer teaches us expressly that it proceeds from the fountain of God's gracious electing love that we are accounted the people of God. And so whenever we see this, praise God for his continual providential work. The first thing we see is he frustrates the plans of the nations, but in turn, he elects. So his plan for us um, is that he has chosen us as his church. Over and over, the Bible will help us see that if we're in Christ, it's because God has elected us to be a part of his church. And so um, we should praise the Lord for that. From the Old Testament perspective, as they're writing, this, of course, uh, is the nation of Israel, and they are blessed because they're God's people. They are a theocracy, and they should bless God because he is Yahweh. We, the church, and I would say specifically Remedy Church, we, Remedy Church, we are blessed because he has adopted us now as his sons and daughters. He has elected us. He has chosen us to be a part of, as it says, the heritage of his family. And therefore, since we're blessed, you should praise him for that. You should absolutely praise him for that. The plan of God from eternity past, if you're in Christ, is that you would be in Christ. That's simply amazing. That's unbelievable love. It's unbelievable love. So the second thing we can see um, whenever we talk about his continual providential work in creation, is that he watches from heaven and he holds man accountable. Look at verse 13 through 15. He looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits on the throne. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. And it says, he who fashions the heart of them all and observe all their deeds. And so we see, I mean, there's, a, there's an emphasis on the visual eyes of, of the Lord. He sees, he looks down, he sees, he looks out, he observes. All these are Uh, keying in on the perception and the insight of God looking down. And it also not just repeats the idea of how God looks, but it repeats the idea of all. Look what he says. All the children of man, all the inhabitants of earth, the hearts of them all, all their deeds. Which means God is seeing everything happen. Nothing that's ever happened or ever will happen is missed by God. Nothing. All wrongs done to you, and all wrongs you have done, every one of these things is seen by God. This, this can be quite chilling, quite chilling. And here's the, here's the thing, holds man accountable. If you have been wronged, the Lord has seen that. And Romans chapter 10, I think it's verse 17, uh, is the verse that we live by, where it says, um, the Lord is the one who will return or hold everybody accountable. I don't want to uh, misquote it. But basically it says, oh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So 10, uh, is it 10? It's 9. No, it's 10. Um, It's 12. It's 12. I'm going, I should have written this down. Um, Chapter 10, I'm going to start at verse 17. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to only one honorable on the side of the Lord, if possible. Depends on you. Uh, live peacefully with everyone, beloved, beloved, verse 19. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I w- Leave it. So there's wrongs that we, that's been done to us, and there's wrongs we've done. So if wrongs have been done to us, you do not ever need to repay, ever, because the Lord will take care of that ultimately. There's nothing that we need to ever do. And if you've done something, then if you're in Christ, wrath has not been put on you. It's been put on Jesus for you. And for this person that did you wrong, one of two things is gonna happen. Either they're gonna become a believer, and just like you, wrath was put on Jesus for them, and you can forgive them because God forgave them. Or if they never become a believer, (laughs) their eternality will be awful because the wrath of God will be on them. But either way, you don't have to do anything. You can just say, the Lord will take care of it. He's either gonna put the wrath on Jesus for them, or they're gonna receive it. And so whenever we see this over and over, he looks down, he sees, he looks out, he observes all the children, all the inhabitants, all the hearts, all the deeds. He watches from heaven and he holds all man accountable. This is an amazing providential work in creation that he sees everything. Nothing is missed. And Jesus is either gonna take the wrath on behalf of us or or the person that did something for us or eventually they will receive the wrath of God. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way, Yahweh thoroughly knows the internal hearts and the external activities and aspects of every man's existence. So if you're in Christ, if you're not in Christ, then repent and believe today, right now, write this in, and you are a part of the family of God and be forgiven. So that does not happen to you in the end. For those that are in Christ, Jesus took your punishment. There is no necessarily like justification, accountability for you because Christ has done it for you. That's just unbelievable news. And then I want to focus in on this one little line here. verse, Verse 15. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. He who fashions the heart. God has made every single one of our hearts and there's no exception to this. Those, Calvin says, those manifest a great folly who attempt to hide or to withdraw the knowledge of the hearts from him who framed them. Like, it's foolishness to think that you can hide your heart from God. It's foolishness. So God fashioned every single one of our hearts. And that doesn't have to be something that scares us. God knows everything about you better than you even know. God making and knowing our hearts doesn't have to be something that frightens us. Instead, it can be an actually great thing. It can be an amazing thing. Knowing that he knows everything about my heart because he fashioned it and still adopted me as his son anyway. That thing about your heart and still adopted you as his son or as his daughter anyway should be an unbelievable thought to you. Certainly something that he should be praised for. Not something that if you're in Christ, you should just live with this perpetual like, well, I'm garbage then. And God, thank God just you know, picked up the garbage and let me be a part of the family. No, you're in Christ now. You are declared righteous and holy. So, praise God for his providential work because he watches from heaven. And the last one, uh, verse 16 and 17 are a little strange. Some writers wonder why they're there and if they're misplaced or if they kind of connect to different parts. But we'll just look at it. Basically, he's just saying nothing can save you but God. Don't put your hope in stuff. If you think, and he's talking to, you know, some, a long time ago, the king's not saved by great armies. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse, which I know you have one in your yard, and you put your, your hope in that. you like, my war horse is my hope. Um, you're not, like doing that. <laughs> and by his great might, it cannot rescue. Basically, it's just helping us see here. What's clear is that nothing saves except Yahweh. Nothing saves. Don't think that anything will save you. If you're a king or a warrior or you have a war horse, None of those things will save you. Those things seem mighty, but the only thing that's, who's mighty to save is Yahweh. Let's sing it. He's, I'm not, all right, he's mighty to save. He's mighty to save, I love that song. Um, so praise him, praise him because of that. It makes it clear that we have no other salvation besides Jesus. That's the third. And then lastly, I want you to look at 18 and 19. Uh, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, and those who hope in this steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death, and then he has this little phrase, and keep them alive in famine, and famine. Now, I don't think any of us are experiencing famine right now. Um, Most of us can usually eat at any time, and so in this particular period, uh, when he's using the word famine, this this is something that could obviously be um, a suffering that most people experienced in this particular time. So when we see that, Take a broader view of that and realize he's talking about an experience of suffering common to you and your place. So number four, praise God for his, all right, I'm going to have to look at my, praise God for his continual deliverance in times of suffering. Praise God for his continual deliverance in times of suffering. For them, they were having a famine, experiencing suffering and trouble. It's common to all of us. Every single one of us have a common experience of trouble and suffering, and in this text, he's pointing us to praise the Lord for deliverance in times of suffering. Not all of us will experience deliverance right away. So I want to acknowledge that. And um, not, I'm not proclaiming a health and wealth gospel here, that everything that happens to you, the Lord will take you straight out of it. Sometimes we can walk with long seasons, if not a lifetime, of suffering and when that happens God has given you himself and the church to help you with that but if he does as we see our God is able Shadrach Meshach and Abednego our God is able if he does and he is righteous either way if and when he will do that for you then you should praise the Lord you should praise the Lord anyway but you should definitely praise the Lord and for times of deliverance when he brings you out of suffering it says it in an interesting way. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. We know that we should fear, and we've already been told that. And those who hope in his steadfast love. And so um, our suffering may not be famine, and you can substitute it whatever you want, but the Lord is looking as it is all over the earth continually for those who fear him and put their hope in anything. Uh, if they put their hope in anything else except for him, he wants them to not do that and put their trust in Him, so He can deliver them. Uh, this this verse, uh, Psalm thirty three eighteen, is very similar to Second Chronicles sixteen nine, where it says, "The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards Him." Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, for those whose hope is in His steadfast love. And so, uh, the Lord. Roth David says, is as if Yahweh is patrolling his entire world, looking for opportunities to show his people just how strong he is in various times of trouble. If you are experiencing suffering and trouble right now, God is aware of it, and the Lord wants you to put your hope and trust in him and let you experience how he can bring you out of it. He's warning you to hope in his steadfast love. So look what it says, on those who hope in his steadfast love, in verse 18, he's looking to see If there are people who hope in his steadfast love and you're like, can I see it? Is his steadfast love that easy to see? What does verse five say? The whole world is full of his steadfast love. Of course you can see it and you can find it and he's telling you right here. He wants you to hope in his steadfast love because verse five tells you it's literally everywhere. The whole earth is full of it. So God is telling us that many of us, owe Yahweh, the praise for his work in and through our difficulties. As Calvin says, the whole human race, no doubt, are maintained by the providence of God, but we know that in his fatherly care, he is specially vouchsafe safe to none but his own children, meaning uh, the Lord has promised his children that he will be there for them. If anybody else receives deliverance that they're not a, a Christian, that's awesome, but he has especially promised his own children that they may feel that their necessities are truly regarded by him. And he may delay. I, I acknowledge that. And if that's happening in your life, that's why you have Jesus and the church to come around you and care for you through that. So number four, praise God for his deliverance in our time of sufferings. Because the steadfast love of the Lord is truly all around you, as it says in verse five. He wants you to find it. So how does this, ver- how does this psalm point us to Jesus? How does Psalm 30, 33 point us to Christ? I think that we can see it in 20 through 22. We can see it in 20 through 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. That's Christ. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. Even as we hope in you. Our soul waits for Jesus, because Jesus is our only help and our only shield. Waiting on Jesus is precisely what they need to do, because the Lord has told us we should praise the Lord. He's going to come again one day, um, but we wait on him uh, to come back for us. And for those that were in the Old Testament, they were waiting on the coming Messiah for the first coming to be the uh, payment for sin. And so, it points us to Jesus by helping us see that they wait for the Lord just like we wait for the Lord from the first coming and the second coming. And also, our heart is glad in Him. We, our heart should be continually glad in Jesus. Jesus is who we trust. And allow your heart to be continually proud and G- glad in Jesus. Jesus is who we trust. So think about I want you to think about it this way in regard to verse 21. What can you do every day when you wake up to make your heart glad in Jesus? What can you do Every day when you wake up to make your heart glad in Jesus. He has given his life for you to be free. You are free, so trust in him and have your heart glad in him every single day. And then let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. We've already been promised in verse five that his steadfast love is everywhere. And he's looking for those, as it says in verse 18, who will trust in his steadfast love. And now he's saying, let your steadfast love be upon me. So it's everywhere, receive the chesed love of Jesus that has been given to you as his children and hope in him. As Calvin says, he now therefore, in the name of the whole church, raises his song to declare that there is nothing better to commit um, our welfare and our praise and adoration than to God. There's a new song out, I really love it. It's catchy, it's, got, it's, it's all in my head. There's nothing better than you. Lord, there's nothing better better than you. There's nothing, nothing is better than you. Man, that song has been a, a, a great thing to remind myself of. There's nothing better than him. So let's look and see God's unfailing love for us, seen most clearly, displayed most obviously for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy. Thank you for a written summary of Psalm 33 that gives us, as your children, reasons to praise. Sometimes we just need to see it. Reasons to praise you. And so I pray, Lord, as we go into the Lord's Supper and as we go into um, worship through song, that you would be with us now and bless us and help us, even after the service, as we go out, continually have these reasons to praise you in our mind and our hearts and that we would praise you continually. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.